0: The early people of Southern Africa were some of our greatest artists. They, of course, didn't sign their work. But if one spends time researching the paintings of certain areas, there are discernible artists there. And one can see their marks. One can absolutely see, ah, this is that same person from that other cave over there or indeed a long way away. And I always found that fascinating. And it really goes into the fact that art is not necessarily something which is just purchased by people to hang in their domestic space and make their place look decoratively nice. But it goes much deeper than that. It's at the roots of our humanity. It's this need to make sense out of this bewildering array of different forces that we have to deal with every day in our environment.
1: This is the Latitudes Podcast, the voice for art from Africa, and I'm your host, Refilu Mpaganyanem. Powered by I2 Art Insurum, Season 1 of the Latitudes Podcast explores new ways of accessing and thinking about the contemporary visual arts from Africa, while also building a robust archive of thought leadership. Are you an art enthusiast or collector looking to safeguard your valuable assets? Look no further than I2 Art & With the company's unique understanding of both the art world and the insurance industry, i2 is equipped to handle the distinct risks associated with insuring your acquisitions. Whether your pieces hold aesthetic, historic, investment or sentimental value, i2 has you covered. Visit i2.co.za or contact your broker for more info. i2 Art Insure is an authorized financial services provider. Welcome to the second installment of the Latitudes podcast. Thank you so much for liking and subscribing to the podcast and of course helping us to grow the Latitudes community by sharing a link with friends and family. My guest on this episode is Mark Reed, who's chairman of the Everard Reed Group of Galleries, which was founded more than 100 years ago. Our conversation centres around Mark's unique experience of growing up in the art business, becoming a rather influential figure in the art community, as well as his parallel life as a dedicated naturalist and preservationist who uses his influence to support several philanthropic causes. These causes include mobilising support for the World Wildlife Foundation, as well as being a founding trustee of the Rhino and Elephant Foundation. He was also chair of the Ditsong Museums, which is the governing body of six major natural history and cultural museums in Gauteng. And he currently serves on the board of the Turkana Basin Institute, which supports scientific research at Lake Turkana in Kenya. Our conversation ties all these facets into Mark's love and passion for South African art in particular. Just a quick note that at the start of our conversation, Mark mentions Lucy McGarry, who's co-founder and director of Latitudes Art Fair and Latitudes Online. She was kind enough to help with arranging interviews, and it's in that context that he mentions her. Let's get into it. Mark, I really appreciate you agreeing so readily. To speak to me and, of course, be part of season one of the Latitudes podcast series. I'm
0: privileged, and when um, Lucy asked me, I was at Strauss sitting down for a a lecture, and um, and I was at that point thinking how fortunate it is to be a included in this lecture with all these lovely people, and um, how Johannesburg has retained. Uh, so many people who are deeply interested in this area of South Africa, and indeed in the greater South Africa, and how much talent is still left here. And so I was mulling over that, looking around, feeling that I was probably the dumbest person in the room. And, And Lucy came over and offered me this opportunity to bore everyone silly with some reminiscence of my life and of the, this gallery that I'm lucky enough to be a part of and who's played such a big part of my life.
1: I'm certain you use the word bore or boring very usefully, perhaps recklessly, Mark, because the esteem within which Everard Reed's gallery is held is, I think, a beacon for many young people and actually for any people, right? It's also interesting to speak to someone who has walked a path and also done so in a way that is quite unique to themselves and true to themselves. And by that will speak to your interests about your interests in botany, in paleontology, and your work in conservation as well. So whilst many people might say, well, these seem like disparate interests or divergent interests from what mainly they consider you to be a gallerist, I don't think they are. You'll indulge me and let me know if you agree that ultimately paleontology being the study of history via fossils and bones and uh, botany being the study of the natural world, which we often hold ourselves apart from as human beings, right? Ignorantly so. And maybe art is a study of humans and the human condition. It all makes sense in some way. It's a complete set of interests or complementary set of interests.
0: Not so. Oh, absolutely. I, I think on, on, on that, art, art is one of the pillars that makes us human this need to produce art need to make sense out of our environment by looking at art and the the um, ability of certain members of a community in order to who who express themselves best in either three or or two-dimensional forms which summarize their view and their insecurities and their hopes and and maybe their control over the natural environment the strange world that we live in if one looks at uh, people ask me uh, quite often who are the greatest artists who lived in south africa and they fully expect me to inevitably come up with the, the names that that one sees but i think my natural inclination is if if i look at who are the most powerful artists who who've drawn breath on in our subcontinent are those Khoisan painters of rock walls in many of the caves and overhanging ledges of the kwazulu natal of the Clan William area of the Western Cape, and up into the Kalahari, and indeed up into Zimbabwe and parts of Tanzania and Kenya. The early people of Southern Africa were some of our greatest artists. They, of course, didn't sign their work. There was no reason to do that. But you can, if one spends time assiduously researching the paintings of certain areas, there are discernible artists there who, some of them are arrogant enough to paint. They've painted over the work of others because they obviously had an ego that that overrode those that went before. And 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 one can see their marks. One can absolutely see, ah, this is that same person from that other cave over there. Or indeed a long way away. And and I just I always found that fascinating. And it really goes into the fact that art is not necessarily something which is just purchased by people to hang in their domestic space and make their place look decoratively nice. But it goes much deeper than that. It's at our the roots of our humanity. It's this need to, as I said, make sense out of this bewildering array of different forces that we have to deal with every day in our environment. To continue a little bit, if one goes to the beach with one's kids and, and you pull up at the side of the beach and the children pile out the car and run off to the beach and the wave draws back, leaving this kind of silvery, perfect, freshly washed, Slab of beach sand. Before the other wave comes, these kids inevitably got a stick, and they are drawing houses or dogs or themselves, stick figures, knowing full well that the next wave is going to obliterate those marks. But they have a need to do it. It's and you didn't have to teach your kids to do that. It's an innate, deep, and very ancient need to make a mark somehow that says. I exist, and we have this relationship with the environment. This is our house. There's our doggy. All of those things. You have to teach kids to read and write. That comes from the, the frontal cortex of one's brain. It's, an, it's a recent development. But the this need to be associated with mark-making is something you never have to teach anyone. And... It's all artists and somehow when we hit puberty, that tends to be masked in the genetic template of adults and many stop and some don't and become greatly adept at making a consequential mark. And and those people we call artists and those are the people I work with.
1: What a deeply moving analysis of... Why art is so natural to human beings and why why art makes us humans, but also spiritual in a way, if you'll forgive me that. I'm not sure if you are in any way religious or spiritual, but it also definitely strikes me that what you are saying is that the egoist's creation of art is something that's innate in all of us until, of course, the push for doing something, I guess, constructive by our contemporary metrics might quiet out that interest or overwhelm it.
0: Yes, I think I think one can be spiritual without having to hang one's hat on a particular religion. I think it's a very bleak life to say I'm not in any way spiritual, because that's the gorgeousness of being human, is to be able to feel this I'm alive by what means is one of the it's the big question and any people who who are so cold who don't even want to approach the discussion and say I'm not spiritual they're missing out I think a great deal on so many aspects of of our existence which are just uh, fabulous one of the things that's happened of course pertaining to my existence in in southern Africa that's recent news is that it very much looks like uh, with a new finds of Lee Berger at Rising Star Cave with homeowner Ledi, it looks like they're picking up some marks there, cross-hatching marks in the deepest caves associated with the burials of these creatures where they buried their dead ones, their loved ones. Loved, one's got to analyze that perhaps, these were not humans. Home and a lady wasn't human. We couldn't have bred with home and a lady, a different animal. But nevertheless, it starts knocking at various preconceived ideas we have of ourselves as being human. When we, I think it's always been in people's minds, people who are looking at what is it to be human, that we're the only animals that bury our dead. He's just proven that's wrong. He's taken that away. And And then if you take an animal that buries its dead, you're actually saying that animal actually believes in the afterlife, because, and that's where religion starts. When granny dies, you don't chuck her out for the hyenas. You lovingly carry her, and you inter her, and you make sure she's safe in her resting time. And with, that's the, ine- the inevitable consequence of that is that we're different from the hyenas, and we harbor a soul. And so he's just knocked that pillar away, and now he's picking up these magnificent cross-hatchings in the rock walls in the same cavern, very deep down, which are illuminated by fire. So these non-humans had controlled use of fire, and they were also making marks with rocks sharp rocks on the surface of the cavern where they buried these so there was a ritual practice happening there another thing that we thought was only human was the ability to think up and develop a ritual and of course finally the making of art was going to be something that only humans did and so it's a very interesting time for me as I'm involved in all of this to wonder about art and its It's practiced by humans and maybe it's practiced by non-humans on our planet. It's absolutely fabulous to think like that. And we're so lucky to be part of a, a generation of homo sapiens who are getting at the fact that we weren't alone and starting to be intellectually confident enough to think our way free from many of the much of the constraints of the rigorous institutionalized religious practices of the past and thinking about what part art will play in the future, what part will religion play, what part uh, so many things that we just took for granted are just part of us as unique animals on this planet. Maybe we weren't. There are many things that will now be brought to light, I think, as we've freed ourselves from the from this the constraint feelings of how things were. Sorry to go on about that.
1: No, I find it absolutely fascinating. I'm right there with you. Definitely not as well-versed and schooled as you are, but I do actually find it quite fascinating and important to delve into these thoughts, take them on. And in many ways, as you talk about being free of constraints, of assumptions or conclusions that we've held for so long. I find that comforting because to diminish the idea that we inevitably sit at the top of some kind of food chain and is very humbling and it just helps you relinquish a lot of pressure (laughs) and you don't have to strive so tirelessly. You can just enjoy and live life. But that's me in my little, taking my little baby philosophical steps. I feel as though we could have a fantastic evening sitting down at the Everard Reed Gallery, having this talk for a number of hours. I'd certainly pay good money for a ticket to hear you talking about this or be in okay. conversation with a number of people. Just a suggestion.
0: <laughs> I would relish that. I would relish that because I think at the corner of, of, of where I sit at my I still consider myself not quite aged, but I'm 66 and I look back at my now 42 years in this gallery and I think would I do it again or where would I go if I chose not to? And if I was a young person again, knowing what I know now, I would definitely wash up somewhere in Southern Africa. I think it's the coolest place in the world to be, to try and make a uh, difference, because really you can here. It's very difficult to make a difference if you live in Canada. Uh, in Australia, you've got every law in the world constraining you from walking across a road if there's a car coming five kilometers away. You can't easily alter anything in most parts of the world. And, and in Southern Africa, people are still the, the, the developing areas of South, of South Africa and all the other countries, which I love so much. I see as one the subcontinent much more important than just South Africa as as an entity, and uh, I I just think it it's so exciting for young people to be able to live in an area where they which, whichever area of human endeavour that they get involved with, whether it's from sport to culture to anything, medicine, architecture, you name it, turn your eye to it, and the in in southern Africa. Africa, you can make a difference, you can have your voice heard, and you can get something done, and I think it's an absolutely brilliant time to be alive in this most beautiful part of the world. There's still fish in the sea, our mountains are still full of nature, our deserts have got the highest biodiversity of any arid area in the world, and you go to our game reserves, We've got better animals than kangaroos and wombats by far.
1: I love that. And I'm not sure who you're subtweeting or what you talk about or you take a jab at the Australians, if there's an individual or just the regular South African Aussie rivalry. <laughs> just that pure just that. affection for another
0: <laughs> southern hemisphere place.
1: After the break, we continue our conversation. When it comes to fuss-free flying, Lyft is South Africa's most flexible airline. With up to 25 daily flights, three major destinations, fee-free changes and cancellations, as well as Lyft Premium, the business-class inspired offering, Lyft caters to all travellers, even those with small dogs. Their dog-friendly flights mean you can fly with your small dog in the cabin. Plus, you can look forward to free coffee and snacks on every flight. Experience Lyft for yourself. Visit lift.co.za to book your seat. Mark, what we're also looking to play around with or interrogate in our conversation this morning is the fact that you have grown up in this business. started in 1913, if I remember correctly, please correct me, by your grandfather's brother. Then your grandfather takes that over. Your father then takes it over from him and you step into the family business. And of course, that story being that you weren't necessarily the initial sort of heir to the Everard Reed Gallery, but uh, here you find yourself. Mark, let's talk about family. And I wonder about what it was like for you to grow up within this family that was helming, as you call it, a blue chip gallery, right? A gallery that is esteemed, held in incredibly high regard, has been able to mentor, elevate so many artists and, of course, is an ambassador for Southern African art in general here at home to the world.
0: First of all, let me just knock on the head that chip comment, which you've obviously been on the internet.
1: I have. Tell um, me it's that, all wrong. <laughs>
0: that, that's a typical comment that a younger person, could arrogant young man could make about the institution that he works with and then it sits in the internet and then people drag it up every so often i don't that was made decades ago and i don't talk like that anymore if i did i humbly apologize because a gallery is only as good as the artists who choose to associate with it and so i i don't think this is a blue chip gallery we're a struggling, insecure institution who wishes as much as possible to make a positive impact on South Africa and help young emergent talent to, to get their work out there. And we like to be associated with the, the start of collections, not just the denizens of boardrooms and powerful people, but I like to be part of the journey of Young people, when they start to collect, and even when they don't ever collect, you don't have to buy anything to enjoy art. To come and have a look and have interesting conversations and form fascinating relationships with both collectors, art lovers, and indeed artists. That's not within the parameters of a blue-chip institution. That's from another era, and and it's not what Everett Reed is about. Everett Reed is about As I said, trying to make a difference. I think there was a stage in our gallery's history when we were uh, very much more associated with the boardroom art. And uh, it's been a a fascinating journey uh, to be the person behind the tiller of that boat as I've tried to negotiate choppier seas and more exciting waters of trying to find out. Who are the artists who are emerging now? Because it's a golden age for art in South Africa, yeah. for artists in South Africa. And so I wouldn't like to be just viewed as someone who's dealing with the output of dead artists. Yeah. I don't negate the importance of Irma Stern or Piane for all those wonderful artists who went before. But I definitely want to be part of, on the radar screen of the youth as they take their place yeah. today. So that's just on with reference to that. Yeah. It's been a, a remarkable life, and our little business started on Plain Street in Joburg in 1913. As you said, my great uncle started it. He came down from the UK and down the east coast of Africa, and he was an itinerant painter, artist, as well as a person interested in. All kinds of things from decorative arts and furniture, and started a so it would it was too grand really to call it an art gallery at first it sure. was a, uh, furniture and silverware and plain Street in nineteen thirteen was not tarred. I went down the other day it's pretty much not tarred again
1: by <laughs> they yeah, we can talk about those cycles as well too <laughs>
0: but anyway, it, it went various uh, evolution. Evolutionary uh, lapse happened, and it landed up in the in my father's very capable hands. And he, during the war years, he was in in Egypt, hated the war, <laughs> hated everything it stood for.
1: This being the Second World War,
0: yeah, he, he became very close to the curator of the the Cairo Museum, with all the greatest archaeological relics on planet Earth, really there all covered by sandbags due to the potential bombing that might have happened. And anyway, on his off days, he, he spent so many hours with this chap that he this love of the cultural riches that 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 were bestowed to modern day Egyptians by their ancients was inculcated in him mm. too when he came back, he was determined to be involved in 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 what was happening in South Africa yeah. And so he, he resurrected the gallery after the war And then it finally became named after him Everard Reed And he had two sons My brother Trent and I Trent being two years older than me Who we were partners And then Trent wished to go and seek out Beautiful Neisner mm-hmm. And he runs a very beautiful gallery in Neisner and I took on the the task of leading this institution. During that time, I suppose I, I yeah, I was uh, studying uh, biology, zoology, and and then uh, wildlife filmmaking. And so I had a bit of a confusion, and the various tracks went off. Yeah, I could have been on one or the other. And uh, I decided that I would join the family business and always make it into a. A forum where it wasn't just art, but it was hopefully going to attract people who were interested not only in nature, but interested in the development of culturally and economically and nature of South Africa and of particularly, of course, of Johannesburg. And so I've always tried to make the gallery into a friendly place where people can come and and meet and talk and not have some oily art salesperson attach themselves (laughs) to them in order to flog them a work of art. But in fact, it's a place where people can feel that they can wander around without any sense of feeling, oh my God, I haven't bought anything. They don't like
1: me. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, So that's what I've always tried to do, is make Everett Reed something other than a cold-hearted commercial gallery and somewhere between a museum space and a commercial
1: gallery. I've read an interview in which she, you, I don't want to use the word, bemoaned, rightfully pointed out the sad state of so many of our museums. And I'm going to draw in my own personal experience as a child who spent a few um, formative years in Durban. And one thing we would do on the school holidays, my mom would drop us off at the beach and spend long, lazy days at the beach because that was free. But what was also free were the museums and some of the galleries in town in Durban so we do that quite a bit we probably do up to four or five visits during any given holiday and we never get we never got bored or tired and we just meander through and take our time and i wonder for you Mark as you talk about how we look after our legacies or not. In this unfortunate case, we were talking about exactly what's available in the Pretoria Museum, if I remember correctly, saying we, what we do have is a huge chunk of the moon that was sent to us by an American president that we could be and should be showing to our own citizens, but unfortunately are not doing uh, well in that department. But ultimately, that sort of flow of a, a civic society or society that Enjoys and is able to indulge in visits to museums, visits to galleries, and that ecosystem within those things exists, which in many ways, as you pointed to earlier on, cultivate the human spirit, human interest, irrespective of where your sort of intellectual passions really lie, whether or not you are ultimately going to become an accountant or an actuary, whatever it might be, a natural scientist.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Very interesting area, too. I wish we had a lot of time to talk about it. Hopefully, this is volume one. (laughs) We'll get invited back sometime. I think it's a complete, I can't do anything but lament at present. There's no soft-soaping this. We are in a period where we are letting our national collections become perilously Uh, close to being harmed by lack of interest, lack of of attention, lack of top curating, and and sometimes lack of safe storage. (laughs) Our museums are not in good shape. In fact, beyond not in good shape. Many of them are in a powerless, sad, decrepit state. And we have so many extraordinary things that I just hope that they Are being if they're not being looked at. This decade, that they're being kept safe, and I suspect some aren't. So that in future decades they can be looked at when uh, a new breed of of leadership in 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 the cultural arena in South Africa emerges, and new curators with the right kinds of finance allow these magnificent collections to once more see the light of day and be properly labeled so that young South Africans can make head or tail of, of what's gone before. We, If one looks at the some of the museum collections in say Pretoria, I used to be chairman of an organization called the Northern Flagship Museum, which Northern Flagship Institution, which was the umbrella body for almost all of the Pretoria major Pretoria museums. And, and the Smithsonian in Washington would build vast new wings Mm -hmm. in order to celebrate what we take for granted and hide in the bowels of little visited museums now. Uh, We've got unbelievable fossils, geological samples, art, furniture, extraordinary human interest from all manner of areas of the human condition, all sitting there and really, very little being done with it now. And that's that's I must say I, as I said, I lament. And the whole thing can, be, repeated. That comment in the other main centres in South Africa, and I, I just look at the Johannesburg Art Gallery, for instance. Now, I think its collection of art um, is is extraordinary. Mm. And it's try and go there. Try and go there today, anyone. And if you can get in, I think you'll be pretty shocked with the state that it's in. So I wish I could say that it wasn't that way, but it absolutely is. Like many things, I'm very much a glass half full person. Like many things, I believe that South Africa in the future will pull back from yet another abyss and not let these collections disappear or become irretrievably damaged or I think that there will be a resurrection, and I think that South Africa will once more have museums which can all take their place at the front rank of museums internationally. It's critical for this country if we're going to attract first-rate brains to come here and not just look at nature, but who want to come and analyze and enjoy and educate themselves about the richness of the culture of South Africa. And- and its geology and all of those Mm -hmm. other aspects that museums celebrate. And uh, uh, certainly our museums are not doing it at the moment, but but as I said, uh, hopefully that will change in the future. There's no doubt that the top political leadership in this country are cognizant of the fact that it's an important aspect to South Africa that's not being attended to properly. And we do have these I hate the term world-class, but I am going to use it, the world-class collections that would be the envy of any other country in the world.
1: We continue our conversation after the short break. Latitudes Online is the world's leading online marketplace for art from Africa. Discover and buy artworks from over 1,700 artists and enjoy editorial from leading voices on the continent. When you buy from Latitudes online, you have peace of mind that your artwork will be safely delivered to you in perfect condition. Visit latitudes.online to discover and buy art from Africa and sign up for our weekly newsletter. I do want to end our conversation speaking to the world, the relationships between artists and gallerists. But having said that, just very quickly, I do want to comment and say that what you say speaks to me very loudly and very strongly. And reading about the history and the evolution of the Everard Reed Gallery, and of course, noting that it didn't start out as it is now, but noting that when it was begun in 1913, that was a time when Black people were disenfranchised in the most extreme way with the 1913 Land Act, essentially having that wealth taken away. And as I looked at the trajectory of the gallery, noting that it has lived through and survived so many periods, your father resuscitating it after World War II, you taking over as a, a director, please correct me, or chairman, in the late 80s, you're dealing with, a, what, two states of emergencies. By 1988, it was a second state of emergency that had been declared. By 1990, as you, you'll, you'd say in some interview, you, or the release of Nelson Mandela, you're looking at, How does the gallery become more relevant in terms of attracting younger people, a broader swathe of people, etc.? And I say this all to say that when you talk about you being positive, that South Africans and we as a country can pull ourselves back, I guess it's these ebbs and flows that is fortunately or unfortunately human history, human nature, but I do share your optimism that we are... and will be able to galvanize ourselves to actually appreciate ourselves and appreciate what we have and actually do something about our potential. I think reality has finally dawned or settled in after that democratic or post-democratic glow.
0: Fascinating listening to you, Rafael, because you, I mimic everything you've just said. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, I think it's both scary and because there's a lot of negativity at the moment and a lot of real reasons to be nervous about our beloved country. And yet there's more reasons to, I think, be hopeful and to be enormously, a feeling of enormous luck yeah. should pervade us to be part of a potential solution of South Africa, the rainbow nation once more.
1: Mm, Yeah, absolutely. Marcus Aurelius wrote that nothing happens to any or all human beings that isn't within the realm of the parameters or possibilities of the human experience. That includes the good and the bad, unfortunately, or fortunately. If you're a stoic. At any rate, let's end our Mm -hmm. conversation on just looking at your own approach to the artist-gallery relationship. And this is the Latitude podcast, and Many, not just lay people like myself, but many artists, whether they're emerging or whether they're established, will always be grappling with or taking a relook or rather relooking their relationships with their representatives, with their galleries. What has been your approach and perhaps how has your approach to dealing with artists, working with artists evolved over the years? Where do you stand now?
0: Well, like most people, as they get older, I become more and more unsure <laughs> what I used to what I used to know for a fact is no longer a fact, and I'm not sure what I know anymore about how I run the business. It used to be a much more steep pyramid, and now it's a very flat organization. I don't think anyone who works with me thinks of me as the boss anymore. Sure. And that's how I believe how one attracts. I want to work with argumentative young minds. I don't want to work with people who respect authority. Mm-hmm. And I want to work with artists who push me intellectually. And hopefully, I can help in ways that, that uh, are subtle uh, uh, to be more than a shopkeeper for them that I've seen a bit. I've been to many museums and many exhibitions and I can I I think I can play my part in helping the evolution of young talent. We don't have signed contracts. I don't believe in them. I think that the relationship between artist and dealer is a tender one that works when it works Mm -hmm. and then when it stops working and I don't want to be a gatekeeper for any artist as they go through life. If I cease to be the place that they want to show it, they must feel absolutely free the moment they decide to go seek their fortunes and seek their intellectual journey elsewhere. And the same can happen from my side. I can feel that we're on a different lap and it's not going to work with that artist. And I think that's much better than having some kind of constraint which is made by way of a signature and a document that maybe outlives its usefulness as we inevitably evolve and as the artist evolves. So I'm not one of the galleries who could be viewed as being this grasping artist in some reptilian vice-like claw grip to stop them going elsewhere. We like to work with artists uh, as long as it works for them and us. Uh, I also think it's very important if, when people buy any works um, of of an artist's work that the artist knows who's buying it. Many galleries don't because they fear that maybe the artist and the client is going to get together. We think if the ethics are, are, are that, then good luck to them. We we'll go elsewhere, sure. but I think it's very important that artists and collectors get together and interface, and that's how that's a healthy thing. It should happen between a, a creator and a collector. And so we're a very open uh, marketplace here. We don't seek to impose. I don't ever try and tell an artist. Oh, you've got to do another one because we've just sold one like that. Mm. So there's no pot boiling either. I think it's it's with true artists, with artists who want to make some kind of real impact and, and analyze art is the a um, window into the soul of a nation. And that's why there's so many good artists in this country, because our we're all standing on quicksand. It's not like uh other countries in the world where the status quo is set and determined and largely static. Here, we have a country that's evolving underneath our feet. And every time we get up in the morning, it's a different country, subtly from the place that we went to sleep in. And this, so artists have a lot to say. They can There's a canvas that they can look at that's endlessly changing and evolving. And so that's why there's so much going on here artistically. And the world's fascinated by South African art. We have a gallery in London yep. and it does enormously well selling works of art but from South African artists to people who are not they have never been to South Africa necessarily, but they're fascinated by it. So I want to be part of that, we want to be part of that without in any way trying to constrain artists to do another one because we've just sold one similar. Mm. That's not what's called for. What's called for is an honest boat which can be filled with the output of the best artists in our lovely land. And we try and get them out via internet. Over 50% of what we do is with buyers who I, I never meet. And then arrange exhibitions not only here, but elsewhere in the world. It's very exciting, actually.
1: Yeah, yeah, Thank you for your fascinating insights and your passion for life, for the work that you do. It really comes through. I really appreciate your time this morning. It's been such a pleasure hanging out with you.
0: It's been great fun. Thank you so much.
1: I might just harangue you for installation two, three and four (laughs) of this conversation. But really, it has been an honor. Thank you so much, Mark. Thanks so much. Are you an art enthusiast or collector looking to safeguard your valuable assets? Look no further than i2 Art Insure. With the company's unique understanding of both the art world and the insurance industry, i2 is equipped to handle the distinct risks associated with insuring your acquisitions. Whether your pieces hold aesthetic, historic, investment, or sentimental value, i2 has you covered. Visit i2.co.za or contact your broker for more info. i2 Art Insure is an authorised financial services provider. Thanks for listening to The Latitudes Podcast, the voice for art from Africa. Please support us by liking, subscribing, and sharing the podcast. Of course, we also welcome your reviews as these help other art enthusiasts find the podcast. The Latitudes Podcast is hosted and produced by myself, Refilu Mpakañane, for The Rare Event Foundry. Spike Ballantine is on Technical for DBO Media. And a big thank you to The Latitudes team.